0: the Lord's Holy Supper, but more about that later. The Lord's Supper obviously is one of two sacraments that we celebrate and observe in our church with baptism being the other. And as Adam has said, we've had the extreme blessing of having both of them displayed before us today. They are the only two that we have as they're the only ones given to us and instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So first, let's deal with the terminology. Are they ordinances or are they sacraments? What's the difference and does it matter? For the purposes of our content, the word ordinance could be defined as a God-ordained ceremony or command. The word sacrament could be defined as a certain religious rite or ceremony that is a conduit for God's grace to be conveyed to the worshiper. In other words, it is a means of grace, if you're familiar with that term, where the performers receive a divine blessing for sanctification. Therefore, a sacrament has a supernatural element where an ordinance would not. A sacrament is sacred and supernatural where an ordinance is merely symbolic of a spiritual reality and submissive to the ordinance that's commanded. Unfortunately, the word sacrament reminds us of the Roman Catholic Church, who uses the term frequently and has seven sacraments, but only two were instituted by the Lord. The other five were made up. In fact, this is an interesting trivia, but the only perhaps one of the few and only things that all Protestant churches agree on is that there are two sacraments. There are two ordinances. And neither are necessary for salvation, as the Roman church teaches. The two we have have been universally confirmed by three things. They were instituted by Jesus Christ. They were taught by the apostles. And they were practiced by the early church. So they've been confirmed. So I have an answer to the question. Are they ordinances or sacraments? As I will explain later. The classic reformed position. And that of Grace Fellowship. Is that both are clear commands of the Lord to be obeyed. Symbolic of spiritual realities. Not salvific. And therefore ordinances. But. Both are also clearly means of grace and more, much more than mere memorials or symbolisms. I believe the scriptures are clear that they are supernatural events, not mystical, but supernatural, that God is present and active in them and that they are a means of grace to us in our worship and sanctification. Therefore, I present to you that baptism and the Lord's Supper are both ordinances and sacraments. I whimped out. Basically, for the Reformed position in mine, the terms are synonymous. Since most of us come from a Baptist background, the term ordinance is used so emphatically, and they've become mere memorials, I will use the term sacrament to emphasize what is more often neglected. Also, we know that the Lord's Supper is often referred to as communion. That's from a Latin root that means having all things in common. The corresponding Greek term is koinonia. And I know you've heard that before, which means fellowship. But again, I'm going to use the Lord's Supper. So at the end of the service... You see, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so I want to answer the question, what does it mean? That's a very important question for any of us at any age. We don't want any aspect of our worship to become less than it should. And that is reminiscent of a story of a little Roman Catholic boy and a little Protestant friend. The Roman Catholic boy went to church with his Protestant friend He'd never been to a Protestant church before, and so he was very interested in what was going on, so he kept leaning over and whispering to his Protestant friend, what does that mean? What does that mean? Every time he'd see something, he'd say, what does that mean? So when the pastor started his sermon, he noticed him taking his watch off and sitting in on the pulpit, and so he leaned over and whispered again, what does that mean? And a little Protestant boy whispered back, it doesn't mean a thing. But seriously, don't. <laughs> <laughs> we need to know what it means. We got to know. And as you know, it's the new covenant replacement for the old covenant Passover. After God gave the Passover to his people, he emphasized through Moses that the parents should know what it means and explain it to their children. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 24 says, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. By the way, the forever is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper replacing Passover. But even that is not forever. We'll talk about that later. When you enter the land in which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean? you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the son of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worship. Now, we might drift to think, well, baptism and the Lord's Supper have always been controversial. It's obviously uh, unable to disagree on all the details. That's why there's so many denominations. Therefore, there secondary and peripheral issues not essential are necessary to the gospel or fellowship but if we're talking about modes and methods then I can agree with that but if we're talking about what it means it's essential if we're talking about what is the teaching it is essential it it, it is very important and you might think well Aaron I know this is interesting to you and other people weird like you, but how does it affect my life? How does it affect my eternity? So, lest we think this is something secondary and peripheral, and it's just like how we get baptized or who administers the sacraments or things like that. Consider this true story. The date was October sixteenth, 1555, and the place was Oxford, England. It was over two years into the reign of Queen Mary, who was strictly forcing Roman Catholicism back on all of England and seeking to remove any Protestant views that had been allowed to flourish by Henry VIII. Hugh Latimer was about 70 and a former bishop of Orchester, an influential preacher and a chaplain to King Edward VI, who was prior to Queen Mary. Nicholas Ridley was in his 50s, and a former bishop of London, and they both had been sharing a cell for over 18 months with Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they were first in the Tower of London and then moved to Oxford. After refusing to recant their positions, they were sentenced as heretics, and the day came for them to face the order of execution by Bloody Mary. They were led to the execution pyre, and they were bound to the stakes to be burned alive. So listen to this quote from Fox's Book of Martyrs about them. Then they brought a faggot, kindled with fire, and laid the same down at Dr. Ridley's feet to whom Master Master Latimer spoke in this manner. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The truth and meaning of the Lord's Supper was so important to the martyrs Latimer and Ridley that they died for it. They Were burned alive for it they could not accept the meaning of the position that corrupted the gospel the finality of Jesus sacrifice on the cross and the ultimate meaning of the supper itself their crimes were that they refused to recant and accept the heretical positions in the doctrine called transubstantiation that made the lord's supper the bloody mass and a continual Re-sacrificing of Christ, teaching that the bread and wine of the Eucharist miraculously, literally became the body, the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's still the position of the Roman church and has been since 1215. So I ask you, as I did myself in this study, are you ready and willing to die for the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Do we understand its meaning enough to participate in it and not be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord or not eat and drink judgment to ourselves? Those are the warnings in the text we're about to read. And the results for being wrong is the discipline of the Lord, even unto sickness or death. So this is a very serious matter. If you're a note taker and you want more information, then note that we could go to many other texts than the one that we're going to. And we could begin by just building a case for and the concept of a ceremonial meal together with the Lord. You should remember, the first man, first woman in the book of Genesis, they were with the Lord. They fellowshiped with the Lord. They walked with the Lord. They talked with the Lord. And what did they do? They ate with the Lord. Remember, every tree of the garden had fruit that was good for them, except one. So what were they doing? They were eating. So from the beginning, God has designed that worship and fellowship be intimate. Like when we want to be intimate with somebody, what do we do? We go have a meal together. So from the beginning, God designed it that way. And that concept is repeated throughout the Scriptures, not just in the Passover that we mentioned before, But like at Sinai, when they renewed their covenant with God and received the law by eating and drinking a great meal. As you know, many of the Jewish worship celebrations were what? Feast. They were feast. And all that came to fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. But even it is a foreshadowing of more to come. Like the lavish banquet, quote, the Lord of hosts will prepare for all his peoples on his mountain, that's in Isaiah 25, verse 6. If you want to know about where and when that happens, ask Bruce. Um, And then, uh, of course, ultimately, the continual marriage supper of the Lamb coming in Revelation 19. More specifically, we could look at all the passages in the synoptic. All three of the synoptic gospels have the account of the Lord's Supper in the upper room. That's the first one that Jesus did with his disciples. That's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And we should go to the great teaching that Jesus gave on feasting on him in faith in John chapter 6. But we don't have time. I just recommend those to you if you have the time. So let's go to the most applicable and succinct biblical text we could look at to examine the most. To learn the most in a short amount of time about what the Lord's Supper means to us. And that's the teaching given by God in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Paul here is teaching more about the Lord's Supper. I'm only going to read verses 23 to 32, but it goes from 17 to 34. Starting verse 23. For I received from the Lord... as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep in death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, we could do a whole series of messages on this one text, but I see a summary of major points or principles to be pulled out about the Lord's Supper. Another way to approach it is, what does the Lord's Supper mean as the heart of worship? The heart of worship. In other words, how does it express our treasure in Christ, which is true worship? Treasure in Christ. What are the elements of worship that should be included in the Lord's Supper based on this text? So, first, look in verse 23. The first principle is practicing or obeying. Notice we need to practice the Lord's Supper. Shamefully, today, many Protestant churches don't even do it. But it's a matter of obedience to the Lord as he's given it to us. Notice how Paul's speaking in such authority when he says in verse 23, he's delivered what he's received from the Lord. He's passing on the command of the Lord to practice the Sabbath of our worship and to practice it often. We have no right to introduce into our worship things that aren't and instituted by the Lord are taught by his apostles. Now think about what I just said. That wipes out a lot of junk in a lot of churches. We surely must obey what God has commanded. Notice in verse 24, Jesus says, do this. Again, in verse 25, he says, do this. So is it clear? It's a simple command. Practice it. Number two, Pondering or remembering. Yes, they all start with a P. Um, So I just noted twice that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me in verses 24 and 25. In the Bible, remembering is more than merely recalling the facts. As with Passover, the Jews would not only just recall the facts, but they would go back to the original Passover. They would imagine themselves in their dark uh, moment of slavery, hopeless, with no, uh, no hope to be relieved. Their enslavement, their uh, bleak situation. They, and then they would remember the mighty miracles of God, the plagues, the death of the firstborn, how God had miraculously delivered them through Moses How he had defeated, symbolically, all the gods of Egypt. How he had beat Pharaoh and the most powerful empire on earth at the time. So, all that leading them to freedom. They would go back and reminisce about that and do more than just think of facts. They would put themselves into the situation. Likewise, we should approach the Lord's Supper with more than just facts. Relive it. Go back to the upper room. Imagine yourselves with the disciples, how hopeless that they would eventually become when Christ was taken, when Christ was crucified. Go back to your hopelessness, to being dead in trespasses and sin, to having no hope, no way to be saved, no way to have access to the Father. You're dead. What could you do? And then remember the mighty acts of God that saved us. Then remember what God did to bring us home, to take us from the hopeless condition to eternal life. The results, not just what he went through, the beatings, the execution, the cross, but think of the results. The resurrection the seal for us that as he lives we shall too now his intercession now for us his preparing a place for us and his coming for us one day I, I beg that God may give us a remembrance when we practice this supper that is real that takes us back and points us forward so the Lord's Supper is pondering or remember, but remembering, but it is so much more. Number three, verse 24 and 25, we see partaking or receiving or even you could use the word communing, but those don't start with a P. So notice in verse 24 that Jesus takes the bread and says, This is my body. Then in verse 25, he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood so this is getting a little meaty so uh, think with me about this in what sense do we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of the new covenant when we actually partake of the elements the bread and the juice in what manner or how do we partake of Jesus Christ I've already discussed transubstantiationism. I won't go into that anymore, but Martin Luther later developed a theory called consubstantiation, and that just means where the substance is contained in or with the bread and wine. Luther said Jesus is really present in the supper, namely that the body and blood of Christ are present to the communicant, but they are in with the and under the elements. I don't really know what that means, but I'm just telling you that's what he said, but it was compared to like water in a sponge. It's not the sponge, but the water's in the sponge. Another reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, debated this concept with Luther and said that the elements were mere symbols, uh, and that it was a memorial of the body and blood of Jesus. This has become the modern-day Zwinglian view that us... In the Baptist South has taken on to become a mere memorial where it is symbolic only. I assure you, Zwingli never meant for that to be the view. But they've taken the Zwinglian view and corrupted it to be just memorial only. But we reject the Roman view. We reject the Lutheran view. We reject the Zwinglian view. We believe... In the classic Reformed view, sometimes called the Calvinistic view, that sees the elements as only symbols and having nothing to do with the real physical body and blood of Jesus, but the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ is in the Lord's Supper. And participants can actually partake of Jesus Christ By faith in the supper. That's what he talks about in John 6, by faith. Therefore, we can say that the Lord's Supper is both an ordinance and a sacrament. It is a memorial, but it is no mere memorial. It is a memorial, but it is no mere memorial. Please leave with that. The body and blood of Jesus is not physically present, but by faith we can feast on and drink the spiritual body and blood. As such, it is a special means of grace from the Lord. Listen to this. If you miss the Lord's Supper, you miss an opportunity to receive grace from the Lord that you cannot receive any other way. That's the best way I know how to say it. And once again, as I've said many times to you, I know what I just said, but I don't understand it. But I believe it, and I trust in it. I bet my life on it. So the Lord's Supper is partaking or receiving or communing, but it's so much more. Number four, peace or shalom or fellowshipping might be a better word when we partake of the lord's supper our communion is not only vertical but horizontal not only with christ but with one another it's real fellowship that can be experienced only within the body of christ this is not something that a group of emotional people in a religious experience can have only the true body of christ can experience this fellowship Look at the context of the passage. Paul's addressing a very serious problem. If you read the verses 17, 22 that precede the text, and then 33, 34 after it, they've corrupted the supper. They've taken their secular love feast and combined them with the supper of the Lord. Abuses are prevalent and reoccurring. They've got divisions, and things are so bad that Paul says the supper is for the worse. There's discrimination and distinctions among them by class and by wealth. So Paul is rebuking and correcting them. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we must come in fellowship with one another. And we should find that our unity is deepened and strengthened. We cannot draw near to the Lord if we are not also drawing nearer to our brothers and sisters. We all know. You know we can talk about how do we know. But we all know. If things are right between us and others or not. And if they're not. We don't need to come. And reference verse 30 in our text. If you want to know why. And the reason I use peace. Is to point to the Jewish concept of Shalom. Shalom means being at full peace with God first and with others second. It includes concept of harmony, wholeness, completeness, welfare, and tranquility for each other and for everyone. Plus, I had to use peace. It started with P. But the Lord's Supper is shalom or fellowshipping, but it is so much more. Number five, proclaiming or preaching or announcing verse 26 says for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes we proclaim the Lord's death when we celebrate the supper this reminds me of the statement that I've said before that Augustine used he called the sacraments a visible word a visible word and so that emphasizes the connection between the word and the sacraments. as you know We believe that the Word of God is essential, and it, too, is a means of grace. The Word and the sacraments must go together. The preaching of the Word is essential because the sacraments would be meaningless without the Word. They must precede the sacraments to explain the sacraments to us. The sacraments come along to picture and confirm visibly what the Word says. The Lord's Supper is a demonstration of the gospel and reconfirms our justification by faith in it. Just think about this. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, look at verse 53. Hold your finger, 1 Corinthians 11, and look over at John chapter 6 at verse 53. Now think about how beautifully the supper, the way I'm describing it, illustrates what Jesus is trying to say in these verses and otherwise how would we understand them without the picture of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper Jesus says verse 53 truly truly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Have you ever been overwhelmed when somebody's preaching the word to you and you receive grace from from God in a special way? Well, can't we do the same from the sacraments? They are a pictorial representation of the word. It should preach to our souls in a very special way. So, the Lord's Supper is proclaiming or announcing, but it's so much more. Next, notice it's perceiving or discerning. When we celebrate the Supper, we should be perceiving or discerning. This point is subtle and focuses on verses 27 and 29. Paul warns in verse 27. That if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. In verse 29, he says that if one eats and drinks without judging or discerning the body rightly, then he eats and drinks judgment to himself. So, this discernment or judgment is extremely important and serious. But the question becomes, what does verse 29 mean? Because it just says the body. It doesn't say which body. Well, the classic Reformed position is to connect verse 27 with verse 29. So it, in context, is referring to the body of the Lord. So the meaning is we must discern, judge, or perceive the body of the Lord rightly, which points to the sacrifice that is displayed in the sacrament. In other words, to the gospel, the meaning of the gospel. This makes it very serious the way we approach the sacraments. The elements are not just crackers and juice that can be enjoyed. And if I might just comment here, this underscores why the reform position has always been that the supper has been open to participants who are adult members of the church and baptized believers. And if baptized as children, then only after they make their own confession of faith. Right participation requires a mature person who can discern the Lord's body and its role in the sacrament. This means we need to be a believer and understand the gospel to participate without eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. We should not subject our children to the risk of such judgment or minimize the supper's sacredness or meaning by allowing those to participate who cannot understand it. Now, let me be clear. We just witnessed baptism today for a 13 year old, but that young man is an adult. I, I shared with him, and if you, if you doubt it, just talk to him. He understands the gospel. And you know, in the Jewish culture, you were a child until you were about 12. And as young as 13, you became an adult. Even Mary might have had Jesus when she was 14 to 16. So, the Lord's Supper is perceiving or discerning the body of the Lord, but there's so much more. Seventh, probing or examining. Look in verse 28. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not only judging the body of the Lord, but ourselves. Verse 28 says, we're to examine ourselves to probe our condition and determine if we should participate or not. This can become a problem for us if we overdo it or if we underdo it. Now, think about that. Taking it too lightly is a sin and can lead to discipline from the Lord. Taking it too seriously, since we are all sinners and we all sin all the time, can prevent us from receiving the grace that we need to receive. So, Calvin is helpful here with this explanation. If you want to derive the proper benefit from this gift of Christ, you must bring faith and repentance. He goes on to add brotherly love. He says, indeed, it is not perfect repentance that is asked for, The Lord does not keep you out, even if in other respects you are not all you ought to be. For faith, faith, even if imperfect, makes the unworthy worthy. Which is the essence of justification. So that could be stated this way. Anyone who lacks faith in Christ, anyone who is not truly repentant of his sins, anyone who does not seek the unity of the body, should not come to the table. But isn't that the same kind of self examination we need to do before we hear a message, before we come to worship, before we do our own quiet time? It's common sense. In simple OHE English, I'll just put it this way if you ain't right with the Lord, if you ain't right with another one in the Lord, or if you don't want to be right, don't come. That's as clear as I can make it. Besides, we don't want to be found in verse 30 where we're weak, sick, or dead from judgment for failing to judge ourselves rightly. Again, you see how the Lord's Supper is sacred. It's serious. This is serious business. So, the Lord's Supper is probing or examining, but it is so much more. But this is my last point. Number eight, prophesying anticipating Maranatha, we could say. This may be the most exciting and celebratory element of the Lord's Supper. Verse 26 says, We proclaim the Lord's death, what's the next phrase? Until He comes. This points to the fact that even the Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing of something better to come. It, like the Passover, is temporary. And will not last forever. It will come to an end when he comes. And this spiritual communion is replaced with face-to-face communion. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is prophetic. It's anticipation. Think about this. Based on the Seder service of Passover, the cup of wine was to be drunk four times. This was once for each of the four I will statements in Exodus 6. And it also symbolized the Hebrew name for God that was just uh, consonants, no vowels, Y-H-W-H. And so it was the cup of sanctification, the cup of judgment, the cup of redemption, and then the cup of praise. In the upper room, Jesus was about to complete the purpose for which he had come the first time and would fulfill the cups of sanctification, of judgment, of redemption. So... After drinking the third cup, though, he stopped. And the fourth cup was known as Elijah's cup. And it was filled and left on the table. And the door opened to invite the forerunner of the Messiah, like Elijah, to come. So, Jesus, what did he say after that? In Matthew, or the other accounts, it says, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, so that's what we look forward to, Church. I mean, it, this is exciting, and I, I I just want to publicly confess how I have approached the Lord's Supper, and so. Many ways, so many times, not comprehending its significance, its seriousness, its sacredness. And so I am begging you as a body, no longer, you know, let's be serious about this. This is serious. Jesus was making reference to the final cup. And that's when he comes again. And he even envisioned that to John in his revelation. Therefore, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking for him to come. As the Bible says at the end of the book, Revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming again soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, The Lord's Supper is prophesying or anticipating, but it's so much more. So now, we're about to experience the visible word of the Lord's Supper together. The quick study we just ran through um, is a brief summary of the Supper. I'm overwhelmed with its seriousness the special nature and the uniqueness of the supper from all other forms of worship most of all it is Christ centered and spirit empowered therefore that is why I can now call it holy it's set apart for set apart people so it is the Lord's holy supper so as we all now approach The Lord's Supper, as the special holy sacrament it is, I pray we do this as we should. Remember what I said, practicing or obeying, pondering or remembering, partaking or receiving, in peace or fellowship, proclaiming or announcing, perceiving or discerning, probing or examining, prophesying. anticipate you. I I just quickly tell you this illustration. You know, I've said before, if someone gave their life for you and their casket was up here, and let's say they took a bullet for you, they saved you and your family, or they even They were the only one who could give you the heart transplant you had to have to live. And they gave their life for you. And on top of that, they were extremely wealthy, and they gave you all their possessions. They totally changed your life. You had no hope, but they gave their life for you. And they said, do one thing to remember me. Would you ever forget that? And Would that change your life every time? If they told you to do this one thing, every time you did it, would you take it seriously? Well, now, that's a memorial. What I call us to do is not just that, but the person who did this is God. And he not only wants us to do it to memorialize him, but he wants to do it so we can receive He wants to give us something. He wants us to feast on him spiritually. And that's something no dead man could ever do for you. And so, as you approach the supper, approach it in that manner. Look back, look at yourself now, and look forward.